Hi, this is Dan Sullivan, and Steve Crane is my podcast partner for the Free Zone Frontier, and one of our entrepreneurs, Howard Getson, who lives in Dallas, and Steve is in Manhattan, I'm in Toronto, and we're going to talk about a very, very interesting entrepreneurial approach by Howard. My experience with Howard goes back about as long as my experience with Steve in the late 90s. Howard is using something new for a lot of people, the whole notion of AI or artificial intelligence, and how he's combining that with how you can accelerate your understanding of hedge markets. So it's a fascinating thing. Steve, any comments? Because you've known Howard for longer than I have. Yeah, a little bit longer than you. First of all, thanks, Dan. It's always great to be here. And I'm excited for today's podcast discussion with both of you. And Howard and I go back at least my entire life, 51 years as of this past Sunday, Howard and I are, I don't know if it's first cousins once removed or second cousins, but our grandmothers are sisters, we're sisters. So we obviously grew up together and ended up in Strategic Coach completely separately 20 plus years ago. We grew up in the same town, Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and then we had our summers at the same beach, Ventnor, New Jersey, Margate, New Jersey, but right there on Atlantic City Island. And so I've watched Steve his whole life. Mm -hmm. You're a few years older, right? I am. I'm 57. So Yeah. uh, yeah. Howard, I've always had great conversations with you. I mean, quite apart from the design discussions that are in Strategic Coach. In the spare time, in the breaks, in the mornings, in the evenings, at dinner, and at other events, you know, we kind of zero in on each other and just talk about a lot of things. So one of my great pleasures in life is long time, continuously improving conversational partners, and you're one of them. I appreciate it. I feel the same way. And frankly, one of the best benefits that I get from Strategic Coach is the certainty of knowing that I'm going to have an elevated conversation with interesting people about stuff that I wouldn't talk about somewhere else. And the uncertainty is that I never know what it's going to be about or where it's going to go, but I'm always surprised and happy. Howard, you've let us in on the inside and you're thinking about your breakthrough of applying really something that you've been working on for as long as I've known you, the use of artificial intelligence as actually a little bit of an advantage. In other words, it's an accelerated advantage that you can have when you're dealing with just the sheer complexity of the stock market in general, but also how do you hedge against certain kinds of risks? Yeah, so it's funny. I run a hedge fund, but I don't self-identify as a hedge fund manager. I'm a technology entrepreneur. I've been the CEO of a tech company since 1991, I got involved with Strategic Coach in the mid to late 90s, and it's been life-changing. So many of the most important thought processes or things that I think are part of my DNA really have a ton of DNA back to you and Strategic Coach, whether it's unique ability or so many of the other concepts, but you chew them, you swallow them, and you mutate them a little bit and they become yours. And so one of the things that I learned is that as a technology entrepreneur, I love technology and I want to talk about all the cool AI and algorithms, but to the client, it's basically a Charlie Brown movie when the adults talk and it's wah, 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 (laughs) because they only care about what they get. And so they don't know how to evaluate AI. 
But strategic coach gives me a way to think about the lens. And it says, if I want to be a hero to them, you know, what are their dangers, their opportunities, their strengths? What are they really looking for? And I think what they're looking for is something that I call amplified intelligence. Mm -hmm. So this is a strategic coach naming concept, but it's finding a way to wrap a bunch of intangible things in a tangible wrapper to make it easier for people to go, oh, that's cool because there's power in their desire as opposed to the force of trying to push the rock up the hill and say, don't you want this? Don't you want this? So amplified intelligence to me is the ability to make smarter decisions, take better actions and to make and keep more money. In a hedge fund, it's continuing improvement, but it's not just in a hedge fund. It's in any business. Everybody wants to make better decisions, take smarter actions and continually improve performance. So amplified intelligence is now the organizing principle for that next 25 year chunk of what I'm going to do. Yeah. Howard, I have a question around your distinction between what your clients want to talk to you about and what you want to talk about. And I think when I listen to your description of it being like Charlie Brown, I'm wondering if you've ever looked at your best clients, not just the ones that pay you the most, but the ones you enjoy being with the most, the ones you see the biggest future with. Is there a distinction between those that do want to go into that geeking out on the underlying thing and just how you might see the different clients, if at all, in a different dimension as a result of that? No, actually, I think even with the smartest, most technical clients, when you talk about specifics, it's part of a due diligence process to intellectually justify what their gut wants. But the thing that causes the deal is something that is not specific and small. It's bigger. It's a sense that says, here's where I am, but here's where I want to go. And they believe aspirationally, that this is going to help them get there more efficiently, more effectively, or with more certainty. And so what they're really trying to do is find a way to save time, money, or effort. Yeah, Steve, you know, my first conversations with you were a year after you joined Coach, because you did a a year with another coach. Babs. (laughs) (laughs) Well, You had your coach for my lifetime coach, so that's my business partner, Babs. But you were kind of one of the first people that was in coach where you were using this new thing called the Internet as a platform for a better kind of advertising directed at particular types of products and Mm -hmm. services. He took that company public. I did. Yeah, you did. And actually, you were the very first strategic coach client who went from private to public, you know, while they were in the... By the way, with the use of a strategy circle guiding me the entire way. Sorry for that deviation into that, but a very important one. Well, we'll talk about that. A lot of the strategic coach tools, I think of as their step-by-step decision-making processes or just Mm step-by-step discovery processes. If you go through the steps, you'll discover something that's new and different. But weren't you kind of providing amplified thinking in 1998? I mean, isn't that the whole point of you're creating a platform on the internet in relationship to advertising? Yeah, I mean, I think amplified thinking, exponential thinking, all of the idea of what started to happen as an entrepreneur, and I think 
like probably like Howard is almost consumed a lot of my almost DNA that I've built into my company and companies and my life and all those things. And so I think the quarterly exercise of stepping back for a day and doing this Howard sale, elevated, amplified, exponential thinking about your thinking is not just a skill that I think I've mastered. I have become almost habitually addicted to it. And so it becomes one of those things that continually makes me look at something that we're doing and just take a step back and recalibrate on what I discussed or thought about in the prior quarter or prior quarters. Mm-hmm. So a couple of things that that made me think about, and one is in the who, not how methodology, you're basically saying, just because I know I need a capability doesn't mean I have to figure out how to do it. Wouldn't it be cool if instead of me doing it kind of as well as I could, if it's not my unique ability, I find somebody else who can do it better. So if you're a simplifier, Mm -hmm. you're looking for a multiplier. But with technology, you can actually create a technology that's a substitute for that who, Mm -hmm. and the technology can be the multiplier. So the company he took public was a way to do contests, which was a lead generation tool. So the technology was actually a multiplier, even though he Mm -hmm. was a simplifier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, You know, it's funny because I didn't think about it at the time that way, of course, Howard, what you just described, but (laughs) I've always seen technology. And I think that I'm a tinkerer and an early adopter of things, even as they're being Mm -hmm. concepted and just launched in beta or alpha version, because I've always seen technology as a who. (laughs) It's interesting because, again, I've never thought about the way you just described it, but I'm almost on a lifelong quest on a daily basis for those kinds of magical capabilities that give me the who. Me too. I'm at my core a futurist. And in a sense, I find a path or I create the path. But I found that the best way to predict the future is to build it. And the way to build it Mm -hmm. is to use a reality distortion engine to basically think about what's possible or what you want to create And so many people say, but that's not real or it doesn't exist. But the reality distortion engine is actually the reality creation engine Mm -hmm. in strategic coach. Because as you think about something again and again and again, you bring order to chaos and then wisdom comes from the finer distinctions, which comes from thinking about it using these different frameworks. And you start to figure out, well, I can get from here to there. Well, what would be next or what's possible from there? And if I do that, and what would be the constraint that would hold me back from here? And all of a sudden, you've got a much longer term picture of what you really want. Whereas most entrepreneurs are focused on the challenge or what they don't want. And instead, when you're a futurist, you start to think about, leapfrogging from this thing that I love to this thing that would be even better to that thing that I can't even imagine how I would do, but it's obvious that it's going to be available because everybody doing this is going to want to do that. So yeah, just reflecting on the last year, you know, the last 13 months for us, it has seemed to me, and I really like your observations about this, but there's something weird about the 50 times increase in number of daily users on Zoom. They went from 10 million to 500 million in 12 months. I'm a news junkie, so I'm on the internet every day, and I have 12 news sites 
of different articles. I'm just looking for well-written articles, you know, where somebody has looked at something and gone in deep with it. I don't necessarily agree with them, but they're thoughtful. They're thought-provoking articles. And there hasn't been a single article anywhere on all the economic media, the business media, anything about Zoom. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I mean, tell me the things that you're talking about and ask yourself if they've gone 50 times in a year. And what I think it is, it's an invisible economy. And going back to your reality distortion, I think that every time you do a Zoom call, what I notice is you don't want to chit-chat when you do Zoom. You hate chit-chat, you know, everything. And if we're not creating something new, if we're not moving something ahead on Zoom, it gets very annoying. It gets very, very irritating if something is not moving as a result of a median, where in, in person you could waste a couple hours before you got around to the point. Actually, another way to look at that, and almost anybody who's listening to this will know it's true, is in real life, people are five minutes late or they come in whenever. But in Zoom, if somebody's even a minute late, it starts to create like an agitation, like don't they know the meeting started? And it's instantaneous because you need to fill that scarce resource with value or do something else. Yeah, I mean, when people are late at all, I say, well, you were in the kitchen. Why were you late? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was 50 feet. <laughs> you know, it was, you didn't have to go far. You know, there wasn't any congestion between you and your computer. Steve, over uh, on your, your thoughts about it. As you talk about Zoom or any of the technologies that are a little bit like a who, right? How do we connect with people in an intimate setting where you're looking at each other one-on-one and there creates an accountability to each other to kind of both be present, be on time, and kind of make use of it. I think about so many different technologies now. I think it's happening with artificial intelligence, by the way, with copy and with writing and with headlines. And it's happening in every aspect of our personal lives. And I think it's really important to note it's 2021. And when we look out over the next five or 10 years, I think it's going to be radically different than any other five or 10 year period historically Mm -hmm. because of that exponential unlocking of physical presence being the required part of the collaboration, which I think was part of it. Yep. Yep. I think you're right. No, no. The reason I say no is technology is accelerating so fast. If you think about your grandmother, right? Your grandmother was born before cars. Like she remembers the first airplane commercial flight. They thought that the moon landing was amazing. They couldn't even conceive of some of the stuff that we're doing, but the pace of change is so fast. Even within our lifetime, if you think about when Steve Case at AOL was sending out all those discs to get online, who would have ever imagined, even as a technologist, that that meant that the way I watch TV would be different or that people would stop going to movies or that you could buy a car that way or CompUSA would go out of business. Mm -hmm. Edges are decaying faster than ever. And what used to be long-term planning was planning for a series of cycles. But those cycles are happening faster and faster. And what was long-term planning is now planning. You've got to be constantly aware of how the recipe for what got you here 
isn't actually probably useful as the recipe for getting there. It was the recipe for how to be behind, not how to be ahead. Well, I think it's one of the reasons why I think the 25-year framework that we've obviously spent so much time thinking about in Strategic Coats is anchored with only 90-day plans on the other side. So when we got into Coach, there used to be a tool where it was lifetime, then 10 years, then five years, then three years, then one year, then one quarter, then one week. I forget what that tool was called. The bigger future. Yeah, the bigger future. And you knew that the long-term one and you knew the short-term one was right. You just didn't know that messy middle part, right? And I think therein lies, I think, the relaxing of that discipline, Dan, by the moving future the way it's now, which is that long-term direction, but what's happening in the next 90 days. We're working hard, by the way, at Startup Health to think about a little bit longer, like a two-year thinking Mm -hmm. as a companion to the 90 days, which is not a replacement of the three-year thinking. It's a replacement of the Mm 10-year thinking. So a two-year's is what 10 years and 90 days is what we used to be a lot longer. I think to your point, Howard, there's a condensing, but there's also an important adjustment to be made on all goal setting. Yeah. Yeah. But the longer term, bigger future thinking is much more instructive and forgiving than the short term sprints. And so the business people or the entrepreneurs who are so focused on this quarter or this year constantly feel under pressure or threat. And using that long-term, bigger future as a directional compass or a true north heading, Mm -hmm. it gives you so much more freedom to say, look, we're making progress. Let's just course correct. And it comes from a place of abundance rather than scarcity. Mm -hmm. It changes the nature of the 90-day sprints. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting just in relationship to mine. So when I was 75, I said, you know, I've done three 25-year periods in my life, and I kind of know what a 25-year growth pattern looks like just from my own life. So I said, I feel confident that I can talk about age 100. I said, you know, it isn't really about Dan anymore, and it's not really about coach anymore. I said, we're just got this enormous wealth of really interesting clients, and they're in networks now. And we've sort of sorted out that we're always going to have three levels to the program. So we were right there. And I said, you know, why don't we just make the goal for what the impact of the coach network is? If you got all your best, smartest entrepreneurs, and they're collaborating with each other, and they're bringing in outside collaborations, I said, I think we could have an economic impact of $15 trillion because two years ago, we did a survey and we found out that it was about $15 billion. And I said, you know, that's a thousand times, but, you know, look at 25 years ago, what kind of goals would people have had 25 years ago? And I think what they're actually achieving is quite a bit greater. Plus, you have the technology component, you have the exponential So if you combine exponential teamwork, which I call collaboration, with exponential technology, I said, I think we can do a thousand times. And I remember people came out and said, wait, you're hallucinating in Technicolor here. What do you mean? But it's only 10 times, times, 10 times, times, 10 times. Yeah. Yeah. But as we've gone along, the book's out there and people read the book and they said, would you be amazed if you had under projected? I said, well, I said, it's a useful number. I said, Even a raw number is a useful number if it encourages you to grow. Actually, Dan, you're making me think about something. Uh Uh-oh. The the 10 times mind expander 
which is kind of the basis of this thinking of how do you 10 times and 10 times, it starts by saying, look backwards and come up with five chunks of how your business got to here. Because obviously later you're going to say, and now let's do three more chunks. But the interesting thing is, you can even do this if your business is six months old, because there are still five stages. Yeah. But in a sense, you get used to the pixel size or the chunk of information. And the chunk size of those five stages then makes it easy for you to then go forward three, because you're basically using the same measuring stick again and again and again. But the trick to strategic coaches, you do it longer and longer, is your chunk size gets bigger, which means you can start to see further and further into the future because you suspend your own disbelief and you start to understand that, yes, even though it doesn't have to be precise, I can still use that unit of measure forward and forward and forward, and it's still instructive and useful. It's a huge benefit. Yeah. Yeah. I think the big thing is that you don't realize that your social environment is changing during this, okay? And what I mean is that you split apart from some people who don't speak your language, they don't have your aspirations. And what I notice, and I bring it up as, you know, what did you discover in the last year about people that you thought were going to be lifetime associates lifetime and it turns out that they're not going to be just because of the way they responded to the last 12 months and then people say well you know it seems like kind of cruel and everything else i said yeah but you've been doing it all your life i mean how many of you there's one important date on your calendar every year and that's the reunion of your first grade class you make sure that if you don't do anything that year you got to get back and talk to the 50 or 100 kids that you went to first grade with yeah i said yeah. you left them behind you left your high school people behind, your college people behind. You've been leaving people behind. I'm just saying you probably did it unconsciously and it was sort of reactive. And I said, why don't you just draw lessons from it and make it proactive? So you had that same concept going back to the opportunity filter when you said, you know, not only who values us, but who's going to refer us, who helps us be more of our unique ability, those kind of things. But when you think about who was successful or not successful last year, you realize that some people were victims where other people were creators. Some people found excuses, other people found a way. Man. Some people were destructive, other people were constructive. And the thing about being in coach or free zone is I don't have to worry about thinking about the future because nobody's going to say, oh, nobody's going to want to collaborate about that or that's silly. What they're thinking is who can help or what's going to make that possible. And instead of somebody sucking the wind out of your sails, it's helping you move forward faster. Yeah. Yeah. Steve, you and I had a conversation about halfway through last year of what you were discovering just based on conversations that were really useful to you during that, you know, the first six months of COVID and things that you're saying, you know, this is really negative. This isn't helping anyone. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a chasm in relationships that were caused by COVID and I think a lot of political things that occurred over the pandemic issues related to the pandemic that I think has splintered a lot of or made it easier to see the gap between friends, teammates, customers or clients or investors and almost make it easier to see whose batteries included and batteries not included for you 
who's making progress despite all the setbacks and has not allowed both the negative news or environment to impact them and have them spiral as a result. And so whether it's text messages with friends or forums like in YPO or in any relationship, I think probably about halfway through the pandemic or halfway through last year, and then I think became more apparent as the year wore on, there was a choice to be made about severing or limiting relationships based on the negative batteries not included impact of draining energy kind of occurred. So yeah, I've done a lot of pruning and I would have said pre-pandemic, I wouldn't have anticipated that. And so it's not like people changed. It was that people kind of ended up seeing much more clearly. Yeah. It revealed who they really were. It revealed exactly who they were. That's exactly what I was looking for. Yes. Yeah. You know, I've always talked to my team, the coaches, and I've often talked to our salespeople and also we have our program advisors. And I said, you know, I think that we have two kinds of entrepreneurs in the program and one of them are growth entrepreneurs. It doesn't matter how much they grow. It's just the beginning of the next stage of growth. Any growth stage they finish is just the beginning of the next growth stage. And it's lifetime. I think they're lifetime with this mentality. I said that I think there's another group and they're a bit deceptive that I call them lifestyle entrepreneurs that unbeknownst to us, they had some status goals. So when they came into the program, they were very eager to use coach concepts and they were very motivated and they kind of looked like the growth. Like they have a thermostat that says I'm already hot enough. Yeah. Yeah, that's a wonderful metaphor because that's exactly what happened. And it was a particular type of house in a particular type of neighborhood. It was the number of houses you had. It was all kinds of status symbols, including where your kids went to school and what clubs you belong to. And when they hit it, that's it. That's it. And they're into maintenance. They're into sustainability when they hit that. And when they hit the COVID wall, they had no future that would pull them through. They had no bigger future that would pull them through. And I think that people who kind of thrived on it is that actually they got better access to their better future because of what was happening in the rest of the world. What do you think the dynamic, though, was, Dan, between formerly ambitious growth entrepreneurs or others who almost because of COVID or in the midst of COVID almost reverted down to a different level. In other words, this to me separated those ambitious growth entrepreneurs even further because I think there are those that were that somehow became not growth or ambitious, as ambitious as they had once been, almost lost their way. So it wasn't like that's what they were. It's who they became. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's the Chris Voss. I think it was at our summit in the symposium last year. Yeah. Yeah. And somebody asked him the question, you know, when you have a crisis, like a hostage taking situation, you know, he being one of the lead negotiators for the FBI, I said, do people really rise to the occasion? Do you know what I'm saying? He says, nobody rises to the challenge. He says, nobody rises to the challenge. They just revert to their highest previous level of preparation. And having a bigger goal all the time is your previous level of preparation. So if you think about the bigger future as a North Star that calls you forward, okay, then no matter what's happening in the trench, you put your head out of the trench to say, where do I want to go? 
too many people kept their head in the trench and they said, well, I can't do this stuff that I normally do. And they spent their time watching the news or focusing on scary times and their cycles were taken with unproductive things where other people took the freedom, the time, the money, the, I mean, so many different things and said, what can I do? Or what would I like doing? Or what could I do that would actually take my mind off the cavalcade of horrors that surrounded us? Yeah. And you saw a bunch of people have the best year ever last year. Yeah, I can test this out on both of you because you have, you know, background going back to grandparent level, both of you, and you were in the same geographical area that there was a book written in the 1960 called The Lonely Crowd. And he was just making an observation of about 100 years of Americans. And he said, you know, when we started this, so he would go back to the 1920s. He was writing this 1950s, 1960. And he said, most people were tradition-centered. In other words, they came out of a, could be an ethnic tradition, and that, that pulled them together. It could have been a religious tradition it could have been the size of their community and what their community was. It could be the main occupation. But he said they have things that you could count on predicting forward. And therefore, if you got a hold of the first principles for your tradition, you were going to be okay. And he says then there was a lot of disruption because of the two world wars and the depression, you know, and then things like television, radio. And he said, so these tradition-based people, the most ambitious ones, would move out of their tradition to another place, but they had a set of internal, so they were inner-centered. They weren't back to the tradition where they were, but they carried with them a set of inner principles and values. It's called locus of control. Yeah. And then he said what he was noticing, because television had hit full force in the 1950s with the three networks, and he says, what I'm noticing more and more, that people's notion of who they are is actually determined by other people's opinions. They're outer-centered. Well, take that forward 40 years to social media, and I think people, who they think they are depends upon what their social network thinks they are. It's also what they're exposed to or what they think is possible. The reason divorce got so popular is that television shows and movies showed you that you didn't have to grow up in the town where you grew up and you didn't have to stay married to the person that they put you with. It created a sense of fear of missing out or I only live once or however you want to look at it. But it isn't necessarily just the external locus of control. It's you get to see the choices that other people make and you compare it to the choices that you've limited yourself to make. Mm -hmm. And it creates a whole different frame of reference for you. Just so I want to say that, that I think in every society, there's a group of entrepreneurs. And I think entrepreneurs are more, far, far more inner centered than the general population that they were born into and grown up the generation. You know, I mean, what people would think about, you know, the fact that I became an entrepreneur, it wouldn't have any effect on me whatsoever. And I feel that about both of you, you know, I mean, I've watched, I've got a 20 year viewpoint or perspective when I look at both of you. And it seems to me you're always being guided by something on the inside, not by other people's opinions. Sometimes to a fault, by the way. In other words, unapologetically, we want what we want. And from the outside, it might not even look like it's that clear to us. But I have found that 
to a fault, it's always been just what, you know, we want what we want and that's what we're doing. Yeah. The thing that distinguishes somebody like Steven as an entrepreneur is that he's smart and he believes that he can achieve anything that he commits to. But instead of using just his head, he also is heart-centered. And so the difference between a good entrepreneur and a sociopath is really small, but it's the fact that you're optimizing on doing well for others rather than doing what you want. And so somebody like Steven is thinking about how do I create value? And then as I do that, how do I profit from it rather than how do I profit and what should I do? And yeah, on my um, terms. Yeah. Yeah. Right. On my ideal day, week, month, life, team, et cetera. And also you're the buyer, you know, more and more you're the buyer, you know. I think the big thing, you know, people are saying, well, how do I know uh, that I'm a buyer in a negotiation? I said, well, who's the person who can walk away? Yeah. It's an important distinction in all relationships. Yeah. Yeah. Who can walk? That's the buyer. Actually, it's not just who can walk, Dan. It's the internal locus of control to say, I can create options. And as soon as you create options, you can choose. You don't have to walk. You can choose. Yeah. But, you know, it gets communicated that one is based on need and the other one is based on want. Yeah. Hey, Howard, I have a question. It's actually a little bit going back to why you're an entrepreneur, because, you know, your dad wasn't, my dad wasn't. (laughs) Right. And I'm taking a little bit of what you were just describing, Dan, about like the origin of how we all ended up first generation entrepreneurs in our families. You know something about your ancestors. They visited an island in New York Harbor. They got off a ship and visited an island and that's how they got here. They went through Ellis Island. Yeah, they really did. My grandfather was an entrepreneur. It skipped with me. But there is an ultimately an underpinning of entrepreneurial thinking, even before it was called entrepreneurial thinking, that I think I've always been obsessed with. Yeah. For me, I think a lot of it came with this concept of being smart enough to think ahead and saying, I want this thing. And the world saying, no, you can't have it. And I was like, yes, I can. And at a certain point realizing, well, if I really want it bad enough, then I'll create it. And in the beginning, you only have the muscle or the agency to do it at this level. And again, as you become a more and more experienced entrepreneur, you realize that your reach is much bigger and it doesn't all have to be done by you, but you have to decide how you're going to focus your energy, resources, and influence to create the things that you want to create, but realize whether you're doing it consciously or unconsciously, you're still creating the life that you're leading. Well, I think it's the desire for freedom too. You know, the four freedoms are really the big thing. Increasingly over the last 10 years, I'm having entrepreneurs in the program ask if they can talk to me because they've gotten an offer from someone to buy their company. I just want to tell you this, how I answer that. And I said, well, did they send you a proposal? And I said, yeah. I said, well, turn to the page that says, first of all, after you sell, do you have to show up? And they said, yeah, yeah, it's two years. They want me around for two years. And I said, well, turn to the page where they describe what you have to do over the two years. You know, I mean, do you get free days? Do you have work hours? And they said, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's a big check and everything else. And I said, no, I said, because I'll tell you something. You're an entrepreneur. You've always been an entrepreneur. And the day after you seal the deal and the first day you got to be in their office, they hate you and you hate them. And you got two years of hating and your former 
staff who were there, they're very, very confused. This is a big differentiator between strategic coach and other things. So Stephen is a very happy member of YPO. And I hear him mention it all the time, but YPO is not strategic coach because YPO is a third entrepreneur, is a third family business and a third professional professionals. And a lot of those professional professionals really dig those long-term contracts where they're the hired gun who does whatever. But it's the entrepreneur that really defines who they are based on what they're creating rather than what they do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've got two cases in strategic coach of entrepreneurs and they're really good entrepreneurs. And one of them is the heir to a very, very wealthy late 19th century, all through the 20th century. And he's an heir to that. And he wouldn't have to work for the rest of his life because of the trust fund. Okay. And the other one is the first generation from a very, very successful entrepreneurial company along the East Coast of the United States, multi-state. And in both cases, when they got into their 20s, they signed off on both their rights to the legacy, to the trust fund and everything. And both of them said to me, how will I ever know that any door that opens for me has anything to do with me? That's an entrepreneur. The entrepreneur is that you want to own your own agency in the sense that you're the one who's taking action. You're not reacting to something you're actually creating. And my sense is entrepreneurs are the ones who just want the most personal agency that you can possibly have in the lifetime they have to live. You know, you used to have a tool called the value creator, and it was a great lens for entrepreneurs to think about the capabilities and the things that they were creating. But you're right. I actually believe that that's the distinction between what makes an entrepreneur an entrepreneur. And it's actually a force function because I think in real entrepreneurs, it's like a genetic compulsion. (laughs) You must. Well, my sense is that we don't know the impact that we have on other people because our only experience of our life is actually us moving forward and taking risks and everything. But you come into a group of people who don't do that, it's like a force field. They have to pay attention to you because you're the strongest force in the room. You know, it goes to the very issue of the certainty, uncertainty thing. I mean, you're already confident. Now you're doubling down with certainty. I mean, you were already a powerful force. Why, why do you have to be an overwhelming force? Let's pick on that uncertainty part of that equation, though, because I think the exercise that we've been going through over the last few months in free zone, and I think a little bit in 10X. Oh, no, is, 10 times, they all do yeah, it. Yeah. Is certainty and uncertainty and how comfortable I have always been with uncertainty. And I think the tool for me gave me a home to put all of the uncertainty in not only my head and get it down on paper, but even give it a home in my conversations. And by doing so, shift it from an area of, either ignoring it because it's kind of, you know, just uncertain, but the acknowledgement creates confidence around uncertainty. And I'm very comfortable now, several months in to going through the exercise of owning the uncertainty in every situation proudly. Yeah. Dan likes to say that the way to show you're an expert is to ask good questions rather than to give answers. And in a sense, the uncertainty is the target that lets you see where you need better questions. But the word uncertainty is unfairly 
a negative word. In this tool, the certainty and uncertainty, I like to link them as part of a spectrum and I use it before or after. So for example, I may be certain that I want to do this and the uncertainty doesn't have to be a negative. It could be what's possible. And do I want to go this way, this way, or that way? Which scenario is better? But on the other hand, the uncertainty might be, this is the need and I'm certain I can fill it. So even the word uncertainty is tough. It's almost like ambition. If you say somebody is ambitious, a lot of times people think that's a pejorative. The word by itself doesn't have a valence. It's what you use it for. Yeah, I'm really noticing, you know, there's sort of a sub-conversation on this and, you know, we can go fully into it. But I said, my goal for you, so I did my last workshop of the quarter and the new quarter starts first week of June, but I finished a quarter and I said, I've got a goal for you one year from now that right now a lot of you are saying, certainty means I'm really confident, okay? And uncertain means I'm really vulnerable. And I said, a year from now, I'd like you to switch that, that you actually feel more vulnerable about what you're certain and you feel more confident about what you're uncertain. Yeah, because your edge is going to decay on the stuff that was certain and you're certain that the stuff that was uncertain is where the opportunity is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think some entrepreneurs have always been comfortable sharing or communicating, conveying that uncertainty. I haven't been. I mean, I, I think I owned on the last workshop that that was a big breakthrough for me to own it from the perspective of, A, it doesn't show weakness, but B, I think many times my team or others might think I hadn't thought about. And so they would end up in my conveying of something I'm really confident about think in the back of their mind, yeah, but he didn't think about this and that and that and that. And instead- Meaning you weren't realistic. Yeah. So you were either ignorant or- Usually unrealistic. I've been often accused of being unrealistic in my ambition. Yeah. Yeah. Therein lies that, yeah. you know, by owning the uncertainty, you kind of can be unrealistic. <laughs> but realize there's achiever synonyms for words. So the achiever word for fear is anger right? It's way easier for some entrepreneurs to get angry than to admit they're scared. They're fearful. And so uncertainty seems like a weak word, but possibility seems like a strong word. So if you're having trouble with the word uncertainty in this thing, think about what's possible. Yeah. Yeah. And you might get a different answer. I'm actually really happy with the word. Yeah. But language is language, you know, and language is kind of like the blockchain, you know, And I'm using that as an example. They said, well, what is the blockchain? I said, well, think of language. I said that we have words in the vocabulary. And if you want any agreement that moves forward, everybody's got to pretty well accept the same meaning of the word. I mean, you can do your own thinking about a word on your own, but if you got a team effort and you got a goal, you got to believe that the words really mean something. Okay, so my attitude towards this, first of all, Steve, I'm in exactly the same position as you are. My team was coming and they said, Dan, we never knew you were uncertain about anything. You know? <laughs> and I said, it's so refreshing to know that you're uncertain about things because we always feel like we're kind of slackers when you go ahead with something that we're not feeling all that certain about, and you do it. So what I realized was I developed that when I was on my own, when it was just me out in the marketplace, 
you know, the biggest job I had was motivating myself out of bed in the morning to go out and face some more rejection. So I learned how to deal with that, but I never thought about it when I have 120 team members. You know, Dan, as you said that, it occurs to me that one of the reasons this tool is so great is people can think that they have agreement because they use a word like red. But if I asked 20 people what red meant, somebody might say it's a color. A trader would say it means loss. Somebody who's Chinese says it means luck. Somebody who's emotionally intelligent might say it's love. But if you chunk high enough to where there's agreement, so if I said, hey, in the context of traffic signs, what does red mean? Almost everybody knows it means stop. The trick is you have to use a tool that chunks high enough where people agree. And then as you move down to, and then what, and then what, you can quickly get to where you're uncertain and where the opportunity is. But it's way more instructive and helpful if you first start from a position of agreement so that you can then move to where the possibility or uncertainty is. Totally agree with that. Yeah. Anyway, this is a nice time for a episode shift. So I just want to say how much of this just been a fantastic discussion. I mean, we've got some real chemistry in this room and I just have to look at more of my clients that are cousins and then I, I bet I can have podcasts. I looked on 23andMe, I think Howard and I are like 3.94% shared DNA or something like that. But what's interesting, Dan, and I don't know how many relatives you have in coach that didn't end up in coach because they're relatives. They ended up, despite the fact they're relatives, we kind of reconnected. We would see each other on certain family occasions, but never on a regular basis as adults. Yeah, because I'm eight years older than him. So when I was 18, he was 10. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been an honor to be able to spend every quarter, both with Howard, but also seeing some of the commonality we have familial on our thinking. So, yeah. Yeah. Your takeaway, Howard, from the discussion. Strategic coach has always been the favorite room for me to be in. And I use the notes that I take as proof. I take notes because I'm a little bit OCD and I'm going to do it anywhere. But the notes that I take in strategic coach are a different quality and I value them differently. I store them differently. I access them more frequently. I refer back to them. I keep wanting to share them. And all I can tell you is it's like the definition of obscenity. You know it when you see it. There's a difference. It's a meaningful difference. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that too. And I feel that I've been firmly convinced all my life that new realities get created out of great conversations. Yep. Yep. And the last thing is, unlike most places that are trying to teach you things, most of your exercises are a trick because the thing that you thought was the exercise is really the raw material for the real exercise, which is now think about your thinking and what's your insight. And it's the same thing we talked about at the end of chunking higher to the point of real certainty. There's thinking, there's feeling, and there's knowing. And one is head trash, the other is emotional trash, but knowing is something that you can really build upon. It's solid. And strategic coach is designed to get you to knowing. Yep. That's very true. Yep. Okay. Excellent. 